We're continuing along in this series of Judges where we're doing exactly what Muriel just prayed about. Seeing how the book of Judges is this mirror into our world today and those ways in which we perhaps do exactly what the Israelites did in the past. And we begin this week kind of like the way we began the previous weeks with the familiar verse, one that we've read in different forms every week. And it says this, maybe. There's an on button on this thing. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Once again, the, the people of Israel had experienced a time of, of peace after, after the judge and the Savior, Deborah and Barak, worked God's will in the life, freeing them from oppression, and they experienced peace. But what happens when they experience peace is, is they start turning from the Lord and once again doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and when we read doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, what it's really saying is the people, the people turned away from God and turned back to idol worship. In the verses that follow this one in, in chapter 6, we get, we get the most detailed description of what the oppression underneath the Midianites looked like. The Midianites would, would take and they would decimate any crops or goods that the Israelites tried to grow or possess. The Israelites, you could imagine, were likely hungry. They were probably poor after having their land ravaged time after time for seven years and perhaps they were exhausted from not receiving the fruits of their labor. Year after year after year, all of their work would go towards the Midianites devouring and destroying their good produce. Seven long years of oppression, seven years of their crops being destroyed and of things being taken caused the people to, to perhaps turn from their ways and to, to reach out to the Lord for help. And like last week after the people called to the Lord were introduced to a prophet. Last week the, the prophetess was Deborah. And, and Deborah immediately called to action and, and called Barak. And, and Barak as the Savior was to then deliver the people of Israel. But this unnamed prophet does not call for a, a Savior to come and, and to to rescue the Israelites instead. Instead, this prophet begins to recount the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that the, the Lord had lavished upon the people of Israel. That He had, had called them and that He had saved them from the land of Egypt of which they were slaves in. And after he had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that 
that they were taken to this land flowing with milk and honey that God had, had given them. And then the prophet says, and yet, you have not obeyed the Lord's voice. Typically, this, this prophet, there would have been a couple things they would have done. It would have been like a formula of recounting God's faithfulness, saying what was happening, and then something like a word like, therefore, there was supposed to be something that would, would come next. And the prophet's words end. The prophet talked about God's faithfulness and the prophet gave essentially an accusation against the people for not listening and then that charge is met with silence. But that prophet's silence changes over to a different story where we're going to enter Scripture in chapter 6, verse 11 through 27. We, we meet the Savior who we just heard through the children's message who was an unlikely Savior, a Savior that was really in hiding. So let's turn in those black Bibles, page 195. Students, if you have your Bibles, it's page 290. And we'll be reading from Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 27. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak that belonged to Joash the Bezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midianites or Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them underneath the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the eleven bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of its staff that was in his hand. Fire flared down from, uh, flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Orpah of the Abysserites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a, bull, as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. That's where we're going to end our reading this morning. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior." The original audience would have probably had a good chuckle, a good laugh to themselves at reading those words about Gideon. When we're introduced to the story into to Gideon, uh, somewhere I should have verse 11. There we go. We see that he's threshing wheat in a wine press. And the angel says to him, mighty warrior. This so-called mighty warrior that the, the angel is address, uh, addressing is, is in a wine press. A wine press is, a, is an, uh, some, er- some area that would have been good. It would have been secure. It would have been a great place to hide. And it would have been a terrible place to thresh wheat. The reason being is it was usually a smaller area that was under the cover of something. And when you thresh wheat, you don't really want to be under the cover, cover of something. And in this small space, you want it to be in a wide open area, perhaps even on top of a hill. That way, when you would throw the, the wheat up in the air, the, the wind that would come through the place would take the chaff and take it all away, so then that would just be the pure wheat that would fall. And instead, this mighty warrior is not standing in the open. Instead, he's in this small, secure place throwing up his grain so he couldn't be seen because he was afraid. The the mighty warrior of God was was afraid of the Midianites, and so he hid when he would thresh wheat. Probably taking him a lot longer to get the pure wheat that would fall down to the ground. 
Gideon is not living a life that says mighty warrior by any means. And it's kind of a, a commentary. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, is kind of this commentary on the state of all of Israel. How they perhaps feel humiliated. How afraid they truly are. How they are, are scattered about. We can read before this passage how the Israelites themselves at this time have, have gone to living in the mountains within caves to, to get away from what would normally be the city that would be maybe out in the open. They've, they've gone up to the hill country to hide in the caves. They have a, a general fear of the Midianites and there's no one in Israel that is a mighty warrior, not even including Gideon right now. But though that phrase, mighty warrior, does not describe Gideon's current state, it does describe what the Lord will make him to be. Gideon, he, he says he's the weakest. <laughs> he says he's the weakest in Manasseh and the least in his family. I think Gideon joins some pretty decent company when he considers maybe how unequipped for the task that God is asking him to do. I've been, been reading the book of Exodus, kind of in my personal devotions and in reading this passage, made me think about the call of Moses and how it just seemed that God called Moses and Moses keeps lobbing up these excuses and these reasons why he is not equipped for what the Lord is calling him to do. He says, well, well, the people won't believe me. He says, well, I, I don't speak very well. And, and he keeps going down this road of saying he's not equipped. And the Lord has so much patience with Moses and we see the same amount of patience that the Lord had with Moses now as we look at the patience that the Lord has with, with Gideon. As, as Gideon begins, he says, well, if the Lord's really with us, why is this happening to us? He, he laments the fact that Midian has come. And, and then he says, well, how am I supposed to do this? I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the, the least in my family. And, and each time, just as God had responded to Moses with His, his grace in a way to, to get through whatever was keeping Moses from going forward, God is going to provide a, a grace and a way forward for Gideon. Giving him patience, not for one sign. Patience to give a second sign. Patience to give a third sign. And I would actually argue there's, there's patience to give a fourth sign. Four signs 
to Gideon. So Gideon says, if it's truly you, Lord, will you wait? And so the the offering he brings is consumed by fire. Sign number one. Later on, after this passage in, uh, I believe it's later on in chapter 6, no, chapter 7 maybe, uh, we we hear the story about the fleece. It's one that's often often repeated as, as a, uh, you know, put the fleece out there and see what the Lord is determining. We, we say that. There's two signs within the fleece. First, it's, well, uh, make the ground wet and make it dry, I think. No, make, yeah. And, and so it was. Well, that was maybe a little too easy. Make the ground dry, but the fleece wet. And, and so the Lord has an immense amount of patience and says, okay, I'll do that for you. And then a fourth sign even later, after, after Gideon had followed the Lord's command and whittled down the army of 32,000 people, down to 10,000 people, down to 300 people, he said, if you're still afraid, go down to the camp by one of the tents. And the Lord provides another sign for Gideon in the dream of one of the Midianite army men. A dream that surely would say Israel would conquer the Midianites that day. God is immensely patient with Moses and immensely patient with Gideon and God is immensely patient with you with me. As he knows on this journey of bringing us into what he is calling us to do, there will be times where we feel immeasurably incapable of what he's calling us to do and how he is calling us to live. He knows that we're going to need to to be shown the way and perhaps given small sign after small sign that we're truly following in the way and God will be patient with you on His journey as He forms you more into the image of Christ, being assured day after day after day of the Lord's presence with us. But there will be a point in time after God gives us those signs that He he calls us to the work that He has for us. And for Gideon, it came after that first sign right in the middle of the night. We look at verse 25. That same night after that first sign where, where the angel of the Lord burnt up that offering, The Lord says, take the bull, the seven-year-old one, and tear down your father's altar to Baal and get out your chainsaw and cut out the Asherah pole right beside it. They probably didn't have a chainsaw, but that was for you, AJ. The Lord is calling him to work because 
The reality about breaking down these false altars is that once we are following the Lord and and once we know we are truly following the Lord with all our heart, an altar to the Lord cannot exist with an altar to something else. An altar to the Lord cannot coexist with any other altar, whether it be an Asherah pole or the altar to Baal. They have to be torn down. A heart fully given to the Lord doesn't have room to be given to anything else here in this world. Our deepest desires that remain are now only and always for the Lord. And it makes me wonder, what are the altars we need to tear down? What are the altars in our life that the Lord calls to us in the evening and says, you need to take this and tear down that altar that remains in your life. In Tim Keller's book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he says this, I'm not asking whether or not you have rival gods. I assume we all do. They are hidden in every one of us. The question is, what do we do about them? And how do we discern them? Perhaps these altars aren't necessarily easy to spot. They're maybe not as easy as a shrine that we have in our backyard. They're not as noticeable as some tall pole devoted to some other god. We've considered in the last couple weeks what maybe some modern-day idols, some modern-day idolatry has looked like. Perhaps the idolatry of work. Perhaps the idolatry of our image and the crafting of our own. But maybe we, we need some more opportunity for discernment about what these rival gods, what these other altars look like. Maybe it's what occupies our minds. When we don't have any else, anything else to think about, what are the things that come to the forefront in our minds? The idols perhaps today are the mental scenarios about that career advancement that that consistently plays out in our mind. Or or maybe it's the the opportunity and the the reason or the things that we think about about material goods. It's those daydreams that we have. And I'm not talking about the daydream that happens once and, and that's it, or, or maybe it happens twice and, and that's all. I don't think the, the daydreams that happen once or twice are the idols that we're talking about, but the idols we're talking about within our mind are 
or that consistent consideration, that fixation that happens time after time after time again that truly show us where our priorities are. In Matthew chapter 6, there's a passage which perhaps is familiar to you. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in this particular instance, it's talking about the idol of money. It's interesting how idols can be those things that are good. Those things that God has given us that are are good and has put in our our lives to, to help us and to assist us when we think about money. I wouldn't say money is evil in and of itself because it is God who has given us that money to provide housing for our families. He's he's provided money, which is a a good thing, which provides for the ability to have food on on your table and and heat in your home during the winter. He's provided this good gift for us, but the problem is when when we take these good gifts and, and turn them into something that God had not intended for us when we take that good gift of money we had talked about several months ago and and we latch on to it. And we're penny-pinching it. And we feel that our livelihood and everything that, that we are is wrapped up in how much of this stuff, the good gift that God has given us. And we, we take it and we elevate it to a level that, that was not intended, creating the idol. I think that can happen with other good gifts that God has given us. I think of a conversation I had with a a pastor friend of mine, we both like research. I think research and, and reading is a good gift that God has given us. But I wonder if taking this good gift of reading and research can create some type of idol in combination with the, the money that God has given us. I don't know about you, but in my background, you always want to make a good purchase. You recognize that, that God's gift of money to you is something that you're entrusted to, to use well. You, in my Dutch tradition, you just don't flippantly go buy things, whatever you want, right? you got to make the good choice. And, and so I wonder... And Emily would probably say this, I take forever to make that good choice. 
I don't want to use my, the, the money that God has given us in a way that's, that's flippant, and so I research things to the death. I have family members that could probably corroborate this. I will not only look at every single option, but I will say, well, this one has these features, and this has this, and well, this one is this loud, but this one is this loud, and well, this has this type of rating, and well, this one might last longer, and all of a sudden I've come up and what is occupying my mind? Frankly, I don't think God cares if I buy a Whirlpool, a Maytag, or a Bosch dishwasher. Where is it in those times in our life, in a funny example of a dishwasher, do we or have we somehow created something that we've elevated way too high? Where we spend weeks on weeks on weeks of time spending our time looking at all the possible options and scenarios and, and different things because we want to make the good choice and we want to do the right thing. And in the process of wanting to do that, we've created something that has sucked so much time and energy and life from ourself for the sake of something that won't return it. I don't think my dishwasher's going to give me back the time that I took in researching it. What are the areas where we take those good things and, and lift them up so high and, and cause them to take all of our mental capacity for a certain amount of time and bring them to a spot where they're they're not in the spot that they should be. We've created this altar in our life. Creating an idol that has supplanted our priority and our devotion to God and, and we've put that devotion in something else. One of the, one of the things that we could consider is a good gift that we can make an improper view of is actually family. We can emphasize and put our family up on an altar worshiping our family perhaps more than the Lord. There's a story in Scripture that I think about Abraham and Isaac. God promised Abraham a child, an heir to the throne, an heir to, to, to his family that would continue on the, the blessing that God had promised to him. And there was this test that the Lord gave him. And it said, do you love me more than family do you have 
trust in me and my promises because I'm the God that called you out of the land of Ur? Or or are you going to place too much of a priority on your family and give up on this promise I had given you? What are those areas where we're, we're causing a good gift to be elevated too far, where we're unwilling to cut down that altar in our life so that we can truly devote our life to the Lord? I can't speak for you because I don't know the, the deepest longings and desires in your heart. I don't know the, the deepest longings or the things that you consistently think of in your mind. Those areas where you, you are unable to give up control to the Lord because you want the control in your life. But the truth is, if we elevate something up to the level of an idol, if we create an altar to something other than God, it will never, it will, it will never give you what it promises you. Your life will be spent giving to this altar with nothing in return. That other altar won't end up giving you happiness unless maybe you get happiness from your dishwasher. I don't know. I don't. Those, those things that you lift up, you're, you're not going to get an ultimate amount of happiness from the, the number of, of money in your bank account or your 401k because it's just never going to be big enough. It's never going to be sufficient enough for what you're hoping for. If you put your family upon the altar, they're, they're never going to give you enough time of the day. You're always going to want more and never going to be satisfied with what you've been given in the time that you have with them. But an altar to the Lord never fails. When we, when we give our life over to the Lord, He will never fail us or forsake us. Earlier in our passage, Gideon wondered, has God forgotten us? No, God has not. He has never forgotten because He is always going to be the one who's reaching out to, to come and contend for you and who you are to, to say He is worthy. The Lord is worthy of us and He's ready to reach out to you and to me and contend for our lives. And so we see that as as. Gideon comes and tears down the altar of Baal, contending for the Lord, tearing down the altars to other gods in their family's life. And Gideon gets a, a different name in the process. He, he gets a name that says, the one who contends with Baal. 
The one who is a, a bale tail whipper, you could say. And there's one who's come to contend for us. Later on in Scripture, it will be Christ who comes to the world to contend for that sin that's in our life, that He would rip it out of our life to cause us to no longer be slaves to sin as what we are now. He will come to this world in humble beginnings. Perhaps a little bit like Gideon who saw himself as the weakest in Manasseh and the least in his family. It was Jesus who would come to this world with a carpenter for a father. He would would be born in a place where people thought nothing good can come from there. He was born of these humble beginnings, but came with power that he would contend with the idols within our life, that he would take and rip them out to make you and me not slaves to money, not slaves to family, not slaves to research, not slaves to anything, but give us a freedom that we so need and so desire a freedom that we can only and always worship the Lord. He came to contend with sin so that you and I can have fullness of life. Not some subpar life that doesn't quite measure up but a fullness that finds its identity and all in the person of Jesus. An altar to the Lord. One where there is no substitute that measures up. And like perhaps that impossible army that Gideon would face with those 300 men. It was Christ that took on what was believed to be impossible. To to live a life perfectly following God's law, something that we could have never done on our own. And he overcame the, the army of sin in our life within the hearts of people and and rose from the dead to bring life within you and me. So we could receive the same words that Gideon received from the Lord. I will be with you. For it was was Jesus in Matthew 28 that said to his disciples, and that includes you and me, I will be with you even to the end of the age. It is Christ's presence with us by way of the Spirit that, that God works in our life, giving the ability to tear down those other altars and to devote ourselves holy and fully to the Lord. It's not a process that's going to come overnight. 
but I wonder tonight, as the Spirit stirs within you, where is He calling you to take your Father's bull? To tear down an altar? To, to grab that chainsaw, that hacksaw, and, and cut down that Asherah pole? where you would not be devoting your life to some idol, some altar, but instead be more fully devoting your life to Christ. Let us pray together. Father, it is You who works within us. Taking these these things which don't quite measure up, these, these things when our in our life that won't give us what they promise, that only will, will take from our life and our energy and to cut them down and give ourselves more fully to You. Lord, work within us in the evening hours of the day just as You did with Gideon to recognize those gifts that You've given us that we have elevated too high. Cause us each and every day as, as Your mercies come new every morning to devote ourselves more fully to living for You. To loving our neighbors. And to leading others to Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.